as has already been mentioned, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. And as Barrett mentioned in his prayer, this day is a day of joy, but it's also a day of mixed emotions for many. Those who have maybe recently buried loved ones, those who have struggled with infertility and other things, our hearts go out to you and to those who are mothers who have buried their children and who are suffering today as they think about those things. But we do want to honor those who are mothers and say that we are grateful for you and all the things that you do. And we are glad for everyone's presence this morning as we seek to assemble together and worship God in spirit and in truth. 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, Isaiah told us he was coming. But more than just tell us that he was coming, he told us how he would come into the world. Isaiah 7:14 says, behold, a virgin will conceive. And bring forth the son. And she did. Not only does the Bible tell us that Jesus is coming, it would be a miraculous birth through a virgin. But more than that, it would be something that God would do as he used Mary as a vessel, according to Matthew chapter one and verse 18. The world has a love hate relationship with Mary. Unbelievers say it couldn't have happened. It's impossible for a woman who has not known a man to give birth to a child. The Catholic world has engaged for many years in what's been called the worship or the veneration of Mary in which they exalt her and praise her and may even argue that on some occasions that she has something to do with our redemption as she enjoys this place of prominence and is prayed to and through. Protestants and various denominations and even Christians are maybe in the camp that says, you know, Mary is nothing but a conduit through which God brought the Savior. She did her service and she's worthy of really no other mention. She did a job God called her to do. And that's pretty much it. While most of the world wants to worship Mary, the other half wants to ignore her. The Bible does neither. It is incorrect to say that Mary's worthy of worship or praise because, of course, this idea of the veneration of Mary began in about 431 A.D. in what's called the Third Ecumenical Council at Ephesus, where individuals thought it'd be a good idea to praise Mary. But the problem with that, of course, is Christianity had been going on for some 400 years before that ever took place. The Bible says Jesus alone is our mediator, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. But on the other hand, it would be incorrect to ignore her altogether. Sometimes somebody says, well, God brought Jesus in the world through Mary. He could have done that through every anybody. That's true. But he didn't. He didn't do it through just anybody. He did it through Mary. All of the gospel accounts mention her either directly or indirectly. She's mentioned at the beginning of Matthew, Luke and John. And Mark eventually makes reference to her indirectly, which says she is important. Now, in our country, it was 1914. Before Woodrow Wilson signed this declaration into office, which said that mothers are to be honored on the second Sunday in May each year. But the Bible has been saying that mothers have always been worthy of honor. And so it is with Mary. But more than just as a mother, she is a model servant of God. And what individuals should do is we seek to serve God and be the people that God would have us to be. You think about her life and all the things that the Bible says about her. It doesn't say something about her on every page, but we have enough that if we look at her life. And examine ours. We'll see if we really measure up to who God wants us to be. Maybe some people wish the Bible said more about her, but it doesn't. And some people don't acknowledge all that the Bible does say. What I want to do this morning is look at the snapshots that we have of her life in the gospel accounts and one in the book of Acts. And notice six things that Mary not only tells her about the way that she lived, but about the way model servants of God should live in every age. And in every generation, maybe you've wondered before, am I doing enough? Am I pleasing to God? Am I being the person that God wants me to be? Mary helps us with this more than just a vehicle through which Jesus was brought into the world. She is a servant of God who is to be blessed throughout all generations. Let's begin. Number one, 
Mary is a model servant in that she found favor with God. Now, in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, Matthew tells us that Jesus was brought into the world. And the Bible spends most of his time in Matthew 1, 18, trying to convince Joseph that this was approved of God and that he should be betrothed to Mary and go through with the marriage. But Luke gives us more of an insight into the heart of Mary and what God thought about her twice. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 28 and again in Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, we're told that Mary found favor with God. She's called the favorite one. What does that mean? It means that God looked on Mary and bestowed a special blessing on her as one of his servants. Now, the Bible says God does not show favoritism. Romans 2 and verse 11, there's no partiality with God. God doesn't play favorites based on mere exteriors. Acts 10, 34 and 35, God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that works righteousness and fears God is accepted with him. And Mary's in that category. This idea of showing favor means that God had blessed Mary and gave her some benefits because of the faith that she had shown toward his name. This idea that Mary found favor with God as Gabriel approaches her twice and mentions this in Luke one. She's in a line of faithful men who have the same thing said about them in scripture. Just think about Noah. In Genesis chapter six, we read that all of the thoughts of the imaginations of men's hearts was evil continually. But Genesis six and verse eight says Noah Found grace, the old King James have, newer translations say, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But not just Noah. She's in the line with Abraham. Genesis 18, 3 through 5, it says that Abraham found favor in God's sight. It's what allowed God to preserve Lot and his family in Genesis 19, 19, when he says, if I found favor in your sight, spare me and let me make it to the mountain in Zoar. And God did because he found favor. It was the favor given to the children of Israel when God says, I'm going to give you favor in the sight of the Egyptians and you will plunder them. Exodus three and verse twenty one. It was the same favor that allowed him to have Daniel and his friends blessed when they were in Babylon. Daniel chapter one and verse nine. Mary's in that same category. She's cherished by God. She's exalted. And while we don't know much about her life other than what the Bible tells us about her early start and her early beginning, we should at least be careful to assume that maybe there was something about her that God honored, that God said was noteworthy and that caused her to be favorable in his sight. Time magazine ran an article that said basically the title was you are more liked than you think. And they looked at some information that they found in the Psychological Journal of Science, which said that most people are overwhelmed with their thoughts about their first impressions. When we meet people, we have these conversations in our minds. We may think that we're socially awkward and I shouldn't have said that. And I really messed up this first encounter with someone that I intended to make an impression on. But when they calculated the research, what they found is that individuals were often more liked and appreciated by others than they initially thought. They were viewed as favorable and likable. And in the end, what our problem was, according to this research, is that own inner voice in us, which says you're awkward. You're not liked. You're weird. You're strange. They said what we should do is turn down the volume of the voice in our head that talks us out of who we really are. And if we think that about our interactions with people, how much more about God? How much more do we think to ourselves? I'm just tolerated by God. I'm unloved. I'm unneeded. I'm useless. But Mary shows us that we can find favor. Mary says not only can God love us, but God likes us. And we need both of those things. If you look at Luke chapter one and verse twenty nine, initially she struggles to believe it herself. And in verse 30, Gabriel has to tell her to not be afraid. She struggles, but finally she comes around. And this is significant because after all, who is Mary before this? Who are her parents? Where is she from? 
What did she do for a living? How much education or money did she have? You know, the Bible's silence on all of these things about Mary is both deafening and instructive. Because it says none of those things exclude you from having favor with God, but neither are they prerequisites or requirements. You can have favor with God, even if you don't have those things. If you're a Christian, you have favor with God. And if you're not, you can become a Christian and enjoy the favor that God wants to lavish on everyone in the world. Ephesians 1 and verse 6 says he's made us accepted in the beloved. He looked down on Mary and the Bible says he favored her. He saw things that were noteworthy and he made it known to her. We can find favor in God's sight. Mary says God can be pleased with us. Somebody that says they don't care what anybody thinks about them. They're lying. We do care. And Mary says to us through her life, God looks at us and God can approve. I grew up going to the park to play. And sometimes you go to the park and if you're tall, if you're a certain height, doesn't matter how athletic you are or your lack thereof. If we're playing basketball, guess what? You're going to find favor in the eyes of the team captains. You just will. If you're fast and they're playing kickball or football, it doesn't matter if you're athletic or not. You'll find favor in the eyes of those that are selecting individuals to play. How do you find favor with God? It doesn't matter how much we jump up and down and raise our hand and say, God, pick me, favor me. How do you find favor with God where God looks at you and says, I want you, I approve of you, I accept you. Psalm 147 and verse 11 says we find favor with God when we wait for his loving kindness and when we fear him. Proverbs 3, 3 and 4 says we find favor with God when we wear truth and loving kindness around our necks like a necklace. God looks at that person and he says, you found favor with me. We find favor with God when we chase after wisdom. Proverbs 8, 32 through 35. And then we lay hold on it and obey the things that wisdom tells us to do. In the end, Mary shows us how it's possible to find favor with God and be approved by him. You don't have to live your whole life wondering, does God like me? Does God love me? Does God care about me? If you're that kind of person possessing those kind of qualities, you can have favor with him. Now, here's number two. Mary is a model servant because she was filled with faith. Gabriel appears to her and tells her that she's going to have a son. And like you, she had questions and doubts. Look at verse 35 in Luke chapter one. It says the Holy Spirit would overcome her or overshadow her and she would give birth. And then once that happened, all of her doubts were swallowed up and she trusted God. And notice what she says in verse 38. Behold, I am the maid servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. Mary's life is marked by one who was filled with faith and confidence that what God promised, God ultimately could do. She trusted that whatever God said he could do because of verse 37 with God, nothing is impossible. And that was enough for Mary. And then she just makes this bold declaration of trust and confidence and faith. I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. Now, people on this side of the cross struggle with it. We approach the text and we wonder, how could it be? But that's the difference between us and Mary, because in the eyes of Mary, if it made sense to God, it made sense to her. Luke 18, 27 says the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. And Mary knew that the brainiacs in the scientific community wonder the scientific probability of a woman giving birth without knowing a man. But don't you get it? That's why it's called a miracle. It's miraculous. It's not the norm. But God could do it. And Mary believed it. She's known as a woman of faith as a result. Would you note the words that she mentions in verse 38? The first thing she says is, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. English translations try to soften this. But what Mary actually says is, I am the Lord's slave, his female slave. That's how she describes herself. What does that mean? It means she knew her place and she knew God's. 
She knew that he was in charge and she was not. There's a temptation on our part to flip that the other way around. God's our slave. God, give me all the answers. Tell me how you operate and what you do and why you do it. Mary knew her place. An employee and not a boss. A servant and not a master, a child and not a parent, the servant of the Lord. That's how she described herself. And then she says, let it be to me. That just means let it happen, God. I trust what you say and just let it happen. It's what Paul said on the ship in Acts 27. He's on his way to Rome and they're preparing for a storm and shipwreck. But in Acts 27, 25, Paul says, I believe that it will happen just like the Lord told it to me. And that's what Mary thought she believed. And then the last part of the phrase, according to your word. She believed there was power in what God said. That the God who hung the stars, the sun, the moon, and who crafted man with dirt was not going to struggle to bring forth the sun miraculously. Her life was filled with faith, and it made all the difference. There's power in just the mere speaking of God's word, and Mary believed that. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth, Psalm 33, 6. You remember when Jesus is approached by the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, and he says, I'm going to come and heal your paralyzed servant. And the centurion says... I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the words and my servant will be healed. Matthew 8 and verse 8. That's what Mary believed. That was her faith. She said, God, if you say things, they just happen. Let it happen to me according to your word. She put her confidence there. And that's what made the difference. Mary is known for her confidence and faith and trust in God. There are people throughout the Old Testament who struggle to have children. Think Rebecca. Think Sarah. Think Hannah. But there's nobody in Mary's camp. There's nobody that she can look back down the hallways of time and say about her circumstance. Oh, so and so was in my shoes before. Nobody. But that was okay because she had a confidence and trust in God. What's said about Abraham could be said about her. Romans 4, 20 and 21. He did not stagger in unbelief at the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith, believing that God was able to do what he had promised. And he glorified him in the process. That was her. She found favor with God because of her faith. And if we don't have it, we won't. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying through Hebrews 11. And what you read over and over again in the lives of those individuals is by faith, by faith, by faith. Because without it, we won't please God. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Would you hold your hand in Luke chapter 1 and go to James chapter 1. Go to James 1 and notice what's said about faith and why it's important that we have it. Because with faith, all things are possible. But without it, nothing is. In James chapter one and verse five, Christians are encouraged to pray for wisdom, to ask God who gives us freely the things that we need. But notice verse six and verse seven. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering or doubting for the one that doubts is like a wave by the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. Let that man not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. Mark it down in verse six. Pray doubting nothing. But if you doubt, underline this in verse seven, you won't receive anything. God has promised to people who have lives of faith and confidence, anything's possible. And to people on the other side with doubts and questions and skepticism, God says, I've got nothing for you. Mary's life is filled with faith and she's an example for us to follow. Maybe in your life you've had so many letdowns. So many things have not gone your way. You would describe yourself as a person of faith, maybe a person of prayer, but deep down. In the deep recesses of your heart, you would say, you know what? I'm kind of a worst case scenario person. I pray for things, but I really don't expect God to come through because sometimes he just doesn't. Mary would say, be a person of faith. If you have faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be removed from here to there and nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew 7:20. Maybe on the other side, you say, you know what? I'm a person of faith, but 
I've been pretty successful. Honestly, I would like to think of myself as pretty independent. Mary would say, your own ingenuity, your own smarts and strength can only take you so far. You really need faith. At John 15, 5, he meant what he said. Without him, you can do nothing. Mary's a model example because she possessed faith. Her life was filled with it. It's amazing that she's in the beginning of every one of the Gospels, because isn't that where it starts? Our Gospels, our lives either begin or end with our faith or lack thereof. Maybe you've heard the story of Charles Blondin. He's been famous and used in illustrations for years and for good reason. In the summer of 1859, he typewrote 160 feet above the Niagara Falls in between Canada and United States. But more than that. He went across one time on stilts. He came back another time in a sack. And on one occasion, he even went through holding a stove and making an omelet. People on both sides cheered and jeered. And then when he finally got over, he said on one occasion, do you all believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across on this tightrope? And all the people said, absolutely. And they cheered. And he said, do you think I can do it? They said, we know you can. He said, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And they fell silent. You see, it's one thing to have faith. And it's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow. Mary was not merely a cheerleader for God's his power and his ability. Mary got in the wheelbarrow. There's nothing too hard for God. Jeremiah 32, 27. Nothing too difficult for him. Genesis 18, 14. And Mary believed that she had a confidence, a strong confidence that didn't waver. Do you believe that God can do anything? I'm not asking you if you believe that's in the Bible. The Bible says that. But I mean, do you believe that God can do anything? And let's take it up a notch. Do you pray like that? Do you pray like you really believe that there's nothing impossible for God within the realm of his will that he can do it? And then do you live like that? And do I live like that? Because if we don't, we'll never know the blessings of a truly faith filled life. In the end, faith is a strong confidence that God will do what he says, which leads to a joyful obedience that will do whatever God requires. It's a strong confidence in God that he will do whatever he says. And it leads to a joyful obedience that says, God, whatever you say, I'll do. Note her words again in Luke 138. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She trusts God. And as a result of that, she trusts that God would follow through. That's what faith ultimately is. We either have it or we don't. Mary says you can have it. Mary says you can trust him. Mary says you'll be blessed if you do. Mary's a model servant of God in the third place because she praised God mightily. Derek read for us Luke 1, 46 through 45. This has been called the Magnificat of Mary or Mary's song. She goes to her cousin Elizabeth. And once she hears from Elizabeth that John the Baptist praised Jesus in the womb, Mary would not be outdone. And so in Luke 1, 46 through 45, we have this song of praise that she offers up to God about God because of what he was about to do through her. We don't have time to read it all, but just notice a few things about this song and what Mary tells us about herself and her beliefs in God. Look at verse 46. She said, I will magnify him in my soul. And verse 47 and verse 48, she said, God is a God who gives care and concern for the lowly. In verse 49, she says he does great things and he has great might and power. In verse 50, he's described as merciful. In verses 51 down through 53, she says that God exercises his strength and he makes individuals swap places. He brings the mighty down and then he exalts the lowly. And then in verses 54 and 55, he's a God that keeps his promises to the forefathers and a God who helps Israel. Mary mightily praised God. And she's an example of how it's done. 
This is a pattern in Scripture. God blesses people's lives, and the next thing you read about them doing is exploding in praise toward him. Hannah really wanted a son. She said in 1 Samuel 1:27, for this child I prayed. And when God delivered, you know what her response was? A hymn almost identical to this one in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. I know you didn't think you were getting homework today, but you're getting some. Go home today and read. And open up your Bible in such a way that you can see 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10 and Luke 1, 46 through 45, 55. And note the similarities between Mary's song and Hannah's song. It's the children of Israel. They come through the Red Sea through their difficult season. And the next thing they do is praise God and sing the song of Moses. And it's what Christians will be doing throughout the ages. Revelation 15, 3 through 4 says that we will praise God in song for his might and for his power. Mary shows us what this is all about. She praises God mightily. We need to praise God in our individual lives. God's worthy of it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he's redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. Psalm 107 and verse 2. But we also need to praise God congregationally. Let me encourage you in the spirit of Mary to never sit out a song service of praise to God. Never sit one out. What do I mean by that? I mean, when we come together and assemble to worship God, never give yourself permission to not do what Mary so boldly did in Luke chapter 1, 46 through 45. The Bible says we're to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. And we're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, 16 and Ephesians 5, 19. Never let the song leader, their talent or what you might consider to be their lack thereof, cause you to say, God, today you're unworthy of my praise. Or at least for this segment of this song, I refuse to sing to you. Don't do that. Never let the newness of a song. You say, well, I don't know this song. Listen, there was a time when you didn't know any of the songs. Learn that one and sing it to God because he's worthy of it. Never let your mood or what you're going through in the moment say to yourself, you know what? I just can't sing this song because for me right now, it's not true. Listen, we don't feel ourselves into a better way of acting. We act ourselves into a better way of feeling. Sing anyway. The psalmist says, I will sing. Yes, I'll sing Psalm 27 and verse six. And may that be true of every one of us. Mary is an example of how to praise God and how to do it mightily because he's worth it. Even the secularist has acknowledged the fact that human beings were crafted and made to sing songs. In the L.A. Times, they wrote an article in 1992 in which a professor of voice talked about this idea that singing can alter our mood. It can change us. It's an outlet of praise for us and an outlet in which when we feel something, singing is our joyful response to those events. In the article, the professor says singing happens because we're wired to do so. And it's what's made shower singers and car singers and karaoke singers for better or for worse, mostly for worse. Out of every one of us, we can't help it. The article says whether you want to or not, everybody in the world, atheists, Christians, everybody in the world sings. You can't help it. But you do get a choice on whether or not you sing to God. Psalm 81 in verse one says, sing to the Lord, our God, shout to the Lord, our maker with song because of his goodness. Mary is an example of what it really means to follow God. And that involves praise in our individual lives. It's been said that we'll speak over eight hundred and six million words in our lifetime. Now, you don't have to use all of those words today. But Mary used some of hers to praise God. She thought enough of who God was not only to feel it internally, but to express it verbally to God. My soul magnifies the Lord 
and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Neil's been teaching us a song on Friday nights and sometimes in the assembly that matches these very words in Luke chapter 1. It's called the Magnificat because it's a Latin phrase which means my soul magnifies. And that's what Mary did here. You read these words and it's all about who God is and what God's done and why he's worthy of praise. Here's the fourth thing. Mary is a model example because she emphasized obedience. In John chapter two, Jesus is invited to the wedding at Cana. You remember, and they're out of wine and she approaches Jesus and she says that they're out of wine. And he says in John two and verse four, woman, what does that to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What that means is it's not his time to reveal to the world who he is as the Messiah. But somehow through nonverbal communication or some sort of notice, Mary realizes that Jesus will help. And so she says in John two and verse five to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And when you drop down to John two and verse 11, it says he did this miracle to manifest his glory. Mary knew that Jesus needed to be obeyed. Mary knew that Jesus was worthy of submission and obedience. I wonder how she figured that out. Maybe she's saying to the servants, listen, I was once where you sat. I know you don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm telling you, he is here because I did this. Whatever he says to you, I'm telling you, this obedience thing works. Trust him. Obey him. She felt Jesus needed to be obeyed. You know, a lot of people want to call Jesus their Lord, but a smaller number of people really want to obey him. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Luke 6, 46. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, John 15, 14, if you love me. Keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Jesus is the creator of everybody in the world, but he's only the Lord, master and savior of people that actually obey. And Mary emphasized this. You know, I like obeying Jesus when what he says matches up with what I already want to do, don't you? But it's that word in John two and verse five that whatever he says, she doesn't even know what he's going to say. But she says, whatever it is, you need to do it. And through his word, he's speaking to every one of us. And he's saying and Mary is saying, whatever he says to you, do it. And that's in a broad way. But can we get more specific than that? If you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying to you, whatever he says to you at the end of this sermon, when the invitation is extended, this isn't just some broad invitation for anybody out there in the whole wide world. It's to you. If you've never put on Jesus in baptism, whatever he says to you. And in that moment, he's saying to you. Believe on Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're sort of on again and off again in your Christianity, the passages in the New Testament that say things like be faithful no matter what, even as death hovers over you. Revelation two and verse 10. That's not just for somebody out there. He's saying that to you. He's speaking to you and he wants you to do it. If you've allowed worldliness to get a grip on your soul. To the fact that you're compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying to you, Luke 13 and verse 5, repent or perish. He's saying that to you. If there's somebody you need to forgive and you continue to justify harboring a grudge, when you read the parables about forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18 or the commands to forgive in Ephesians 432, that should pierce your heart. He's saying it to you and to me. I want you to do it. Whatever he says, not just to anybody, whatever he's saying to you. Just make up your mind that he's worthy of your obedience. He's the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Mary saying, whatever his message is, you need to realize that he needs to be obeyed. You need to submit to him or you'll never know the true joy of being a faithful servant. Here's number five. Mary was found near the cross. 
The prophet said everybody was going to abandon Jesus when it got rough. Zechariah 13 and verse 7. And they did. Matthew 26 and verse 56 says all of the disciples forsook him and they fled, but not Mary. She was there. And John 19 and verse 26, it says, as he hung on the cross, he looked out and he saw his mother. What a sight. We might just read that and think, well, there's Mary and all of these women. Listen, she was his God. He was her God, her creator, her judge. But he was also her son. While all of the disciples ran away from the cross, she couldn't turn away. She ran to it. She saw the mock trial and she was told early on in Luke chapter two, when he was a baby, 12 days old, and she brought him to the temple. She was told one day a sword will pierce through your own soul. That means there was going to be pain and hardship associated with being her mother. She could hardly imagine what all of that would encompass. But at the end of Jesus's life, she's at the foot of the cross. She's there and she's an example that we need to find our place there, too. Jesus says in verse 26, he points at the disciple whom he loves and he says, behold, your son. And he says to John, the disciple whom he loved, behold, your mother. He saw for her provision. And we need to find our place at the cross, too. There's something healthy about spiritually healthy about partaking of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. We need to get underneath the cross and see where we stand. There are things that we learn only at the cross that only the cross can teach us. And Mary's there. She's present. Don't you know it had to be hard for her to be there? It had to be difficult to see the things that transpired as they beat him and as they massacred him. And as they said all these things about him being a false messiah. Listen, if he's a false messiah, what does that say about her and her purity? And the fact that she brought him forth through no sort of infidelity or no sort of fornication. What they're saying about him has great bearing on her and her reputation as well. But there she stands. She hears it all. She sees it all. And she stays at the cross. We need to find our place near the cross because at the cross, we learn sin is costly and deadly. It costs something when we sin. God says that Hebrews 922 without the shedding of blood, there's no. But the cross also reminds us that God loved us at our worst. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us before you ever prayed a prayer, before you ever read a Bible verse, before you ever did anything in obedience to him. Christ died for us. The cross says sometimes winning looks like losing. We need to stand under the foot of the cross because we are tempted to judge our lives based on man made scoreboards, which says if these things are going well, you're doing good. The cross says sometimes winning looks like losing. It looks like the worst day in the world, but it's actually the very best. We need to find our place under the cross because it says to us the best is yet to come. God has great things in store for every Friday evening of our lives. There's a Sunday morning and an ultimate Sunday morning that God hopes and will bring eventually. And then we need to stand at the cross because it says Jesus always finishes what he starts. In John 19 and verse 30, he says it is finished. He didn't say he was finished. He said it was finished. What was finished? The reign of sin in human lives. The law bearing down on people who could never obey it and fulfill it and his mission to come and die for the sins of the world. Now, here is the last place in which Mary is a model servant for us. She assembled with God's people. In Acts chapter one, the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come so that they can go and preach the gospel to everybody in the world. And the disciples are there and they're waiting. There were 120 of them. But we read in verse 14 that there are women there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And also his brothers. 
This is the last time in the Bible that we read about Mary. But there she is, assembled with God's people. It would do nothing to be chosen by God, to praise and bless God, and then to not assemble with his people. But Mary saw fit to assemble with the people of God. And we need to learn from her, from her example and do the same in our own lives. You know, there are some people that are just content with being, quote unquote, Christians at large. They don't assemble with anybody. They're not a part of a congregation. Listen, they've got a personal relationship with God. And as much as every one of us needs a personal relationship with God, we need a congregational relationship with God's people. And there's just no other way around that. It's impossible to be pleasing to God on an island separate and apart from his people. And Mary knew that. And she found herself with God's people. Throughout your life, look to Mary as an example and find your place among the people of God. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not neglect meeting together. We sometimes read that verse and we say, don't forsake the assembly. That's right. But here's the question. Which assembly? Because Hebrews 10.25 doesn't have Sunday in there, whether we believe it or not. It just says the assembly. It just says the meeting together. Well, what does it mean? Then it means do not abandon the people of God wherever they assemble, whenever they assemble. Sunday night and Wednesday night, so long as we can. You find yourself among the people of God. That's what Mary does. She's there assembled with God's people. And we need to find our place there as well. Not merely sitting down and occupying a pew, but taking up a towel to serve. Finding our place in God's family and doing what God would have us to do. Mary's an example because she's assembled with God's people. And she used her talents and gifts and abilities not only to bring Jesus into the world, but to find her place among God's people once his kingdom was about to begin. If Jesus is a king and Jesus has a kingdom, I need to be where that kingdom is and among his people. After Acts chapter one, there's nothing else said about Mary. And I think that's significant. She does her part. She plays her role. And then she quietly fades off the scene and allows Jesus to play the star role that only he was cast to play. She would say to people that worship her today, don't worship me. My soul magnifies him. Obey him. Do whatever he says. And to people that would try to ignore her, the Bible would say she's more than a mere conduit. She's more than a mere vessel. She's an example of what true and faithful service to God looks like. She found herself at the foot of the cross, and that's where we all need to find ourselves. If we would ever be saved, we need to find ourselves at the foot of the cross, see what Jesus did for us, and how land hold on that by faith, the same faith that Mary had, and allowed to push us to say, whatever he says, I trust him and I'm going to obey. If you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, this is God's invitation to you. To investigate the claims of Christianity, I know somebody says it's hard to believe, though. Listen, Mary was there. An angel was speaking to her and it was hard for her to believe. But she did. You haven't obeyed the gospel. God is saying to you, you're guilty of transgression and sin. But my love has overwhelmed that. And in grace, you can be saved if you believe Jesus is the son of God and you turn from sin and you confess that faith and you're immersed in water. I'll forgive all of your transgressions, all of your sins. I'll add you to my family, the church, and you can be a part of my people. Mary's life says, if you are a Christian, magnify God with your soul. With the rest of your life, find your place among God's people and faithfully serve him because he's worth it. He's worthy of it. And you'll be thankful forever that you did. She sets an example for us. And she points us to the one that she brought into the world who one day wants to take us out of this world to be with him. We're going to stand and sing this song of invitation. But before we sing it, Just think about your station in life, where you stand in relation to the word of God and whatever he is saying to you, whether that's to repent, whether that's to forgive, whether that's to increase in faith and see that you can be loved and find favor with God. 
whatever he says to you, make up your mind that you're going to do it and obey. If we can help you, come now together we stand and as we sing.